listening to the Jay's Journal Podcast, special edition with Todd Stottlemyre taking your calls this evening. My name is Ari Shapiro, and I'll be your host this evening as we listen in on Todd interacting with various different callers, talking about his life on regarding baseball on and off the field. Todd Stottlemyre is someone that I've interviewed in the past, and I can tell you one of the things that I enjoy about this particular gentleman is just how down-to-earth and genuine he really is. I hope you truly appreciate some of his perspectives on the things he'll be talking about this evening, because it is a rare thing indeed when you can talk to a professional athlete after finishing his baseball career and find that he looks forward to virtually all facets of life, maybe even more than at the peak of his own playing career. So without further delay, let's go ahead and bring on Todd Stottlemyre. He's an author, an entrepreneur, a former Major League Baseball pitcher for 15 seasons, and a three-time World Series champion. Oh, and he also played for your Toronto Blue Jays. Todd Stoudemire is with me tonight. Todd, how are you doing? Man, Ari, I'm doing great. What a pleasure. What an honor to hang out with you tonight. Uh, I'm looking forward to this, and I really appreciate uh, you having me on your show. Well, the pleasure is all mine, and as I promised you from our last uh, conversation that we had back in the spring, I would work on getting a nice radio phone in portion and... Uh, tweeting right now on my feed and the Jays Journal feed and across most of the fan-sided network is the number. You can call us at 646-787-8521. That is the Jays Journal podcast number that I have for you. While we're taking calls, I, I have got a whole bunch of questions for you. I want to catch up with you since the last time we had a conversation and get your impressions on all things baseball. And so I'm going to throw a whole bunch of random stuff your way, and I know you love that. You you almost encourage me to do that every time we, uh, yeah, we man, have a conversation. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so I, I want to get your thoughts on something that's really hot right now that happened recently. And I'm talking about, here in Toronto, the release of Jason Grilly, whom, as you know, was a, was a fan favorite during the, the stretch run last year that got them into the postseason. And, of course, now he's been released and is no longer with the team. I wanted to get your opinion and thoughts on the kind of fleeting nature of fame in baseball and what it means when you're in the spotlight and what happens when um, that light fades almost as quickly sometimes it's arrived for the average baseball player. What are your thoughts about being a fan favorite one day and then kind of moving on and accepting that now someone else is looking at a different option for the team and there's a new favorite in town? You know, it's part of the business and, and, you know, I, I, I think that as, t- as tough and difficult as it can be sometimes for a player, that's just the business um, that we're all in, you know. And, and you're, you know, you're paid a lot of money, and you're paid a lot of money to perform. And, and you know, fans that where you can go to fan favorite to out in a, out in a jiffy is, look, not only do they have fans know you're getting paid a lot of money for, to perform, but they're paying a lot of money to go watch you perform, and they have expectations. And sometimes an organization uh, will make a move, you know, if they don't like the way things are going, and sometimes it can be sent as a message into the locker room as a shakeup that says, hey, uh, we plan on winning, we're prepared to win, we plan on spending well, the things and the necessary money that we do on the athletes that we believe that can help us win. And it just becomes part of the business. I'll, I'll never forget, you know, my first seven years were in Toronto. I, I actually I actually had in my mind or the dream that I would play for the Toronto Blue Jays my whole career. And then, of course, you wake up one day and, and uh, they make a decision that as a free agent that they're not even interested in me. And forget about interested in making me an offer. They 
they were simply not interested. And, and it's a hard pill to swallow, especially when it happens to you the first time. But uh, like I say, un- unfortunately, it's part of the business. It's part of the game. It's part of the world we play in. And uh, I'm sure that he's going to land on his feet and, and figure things out. Now, I, I know that you sometimes spend time uh, up north. You travel to Toronto on, on business, and I know you've got a lot of friends and, and acquaintances here. Do you still get noticed when you walk around in downtown Toronto, or are you surprised sometimes when people come up to you and remember you from those great years about, uh, you know, about the better part of two decades ago? Well, you know, the, one, one of the neat things I'll say, first of all, is, is that uh, the love that the city and the country has for those 92, 93 teams and, and how special that is. And, and, of course, it's the first time they won, and they haven't won since. And I know that they're craving another world championship in Toronto. And, uh, you know, so that part of it is really neat. I, I would say that I'm I'm pretty safe walking downtown Toronto. Actually, I was just there. And, you know, you get recognized occasionally. You know, obviously, you go in, you have dinner or something, you put your credit card down, and then they read the name on the credit card, and then that's a different ball game. But, uh you know, it's been a long time, and uh, but at the same time, and you know what's funny is the people of Toronto, the restaurant owners and that sort of thing, they're, they're so great and they're so gracious, and and uh, we were just there, put my credit card down and came back, and they said, uh, no, sir, the dinner is on us, and just, you know, uh, you know, we don't, you don't expect that, but it's just the way the people in Canada and Toronto and the city, that how they've treated us, uh, all along when we played there and then even since we've left. Speaking with Todd Stottlemyre, who's graciously joined us this evening to take calls and, and talk about his life in baseball. Uh, as you can imagine, Todd, the, the team's in turmoil right now. They seem to have reached this stage where a lot of fans now are struggling with a, a general, uh, I'd say, schizophrenia, if you will. It's almost like they're not sure what, what kind of team they have exactly but they know that they're being told by the ownership of the team and by all the media aspects of the team that they're in the race. I'm wondering at what point do you think the conversation begins that maybe this team just simply isn't good enough? And knowing that you have some experience about being an underdog and coming back from a poor start, you look at this team, what advice would you give them right now knowing that they're four games under 500 and scuffling in the American League East? Yeah, they were, you know, they were one game from 500, right? And and they got as far as there, and then they've kind of backed off again. But, uh, you know, four games under 500, only six, six and a half games out of first place. It, it, it seems a little bit strange, but at the same time, it is June. And, and, uh, and I know that, you know, we've played a number of games. You know, we're getting close right now to the halfway point. Uh, and, and I would tell you that, uh, you're going to get very, very close to that trading deadline. And we're going to see, you know, where, where's the club and how is the club going to shape up going into that trading deadline? See, because will the club be in a position or will they look at this season as it's time to trade away somebody and start thinking about the future? Or will you be trading for somebody that tries to help you make a pennant run and start chasing this thing for real. So I would tell you that over the next, uh, you know, three to four weeks, it's going to get real interesting. Of course, we're going to mix in the all-star break between now and then. But, uh, you know, look, you got to fight to get back to 500. It's pretty crazy to think you're only six, six and a half games out of first place. 
I don't know how many games out of the wild card, but at the at the end of the day, the, the this whole wild card thing has changed, and it's changed for the teams that get to the All Star break and are hanging around 500 because they're still in the race and they still have a chance. And to me, that's what makes that trading deadline, you know, kind of a one of those deadlines where I think that there's more emphasis on it today than maybe never before, and that's because of the wild card. And now I'm curious, Todd, you mentioned the wild card. Is that still somewhat of a foreign concept to you as a baseball player, this notion that Major League Baseball decided that in an effort to create more revenue opportunities and more excitement for the fans, it found a way to to create another layer of qualification? What are your feelings to this day about the wild card? Well, you know, initially I was a baseball purist, and I remember that, and I don't recall when the first year when they introduced it, but uh, um, like I say, initially I was a baseball purist. I was like, man, you should have to win your division and then go and rival, you know, if you played in the East, you got to rival the team in the West, and, you know, you figure out who's going to go to the the World Series. But uh, um, over the years, I got to tell you, I like it. And the reason I like it is it gives another layer of playoffs and an extra layer of playoffs where you're seeing baseball at its best with some of the brightest stars and brightest teams in the game. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't bother me. I think that it's a heck of a toll. Uh, you play 162 games and then you throw an extra layer of playoffs in and, and in some cases two layers. And, and uh, so, I mean, it wouldn't bother me for them to shorten the season 20 games. And play more playoff games. And and I just think, you know, I, I watch hockey, look, and I love to watch hockey uh, in, in the playoffs and all the different rounds. And I think you see the best. You see, you see the most aggressive skating. You see all of the things. You see people going all out all the time. And, and same with the NBA. You know, it's pretty crazy. You can watch an NBA game uh, during the middle of the season and you watch an NBA game in the playoffs and they're drastically different. So, I love the extra layer of playoffs. I love the extra excitement. I love the opportunity that how a team that, you know, over 162 games, they might not have gotten first, but they might have a great team. And they might not be in first place because maybe they get off to a slow start like the Toronto Blue Jays have gotten off to a slow start. And and, and what if, if, and if we're sitting here and we just created a hypothetical, what if the Toronto Blue Jays, the second half of the season, are the best team in baseball but because they got off to a slow start, in the old days, they might not make the playoffs and even know they're the best team the second half. So it gives the opportunity, it gives teams the opportunity to kind of reorganize, uh, you know, maybe get some guys healthy, maybe there were some key injuries and those sort of things, and still gives the teams that maybe does really truly deserve to be in the playoffs, it gives them a chance to kind of, fight that 162-game journey and still have a chance to make it. So I kind of like it. Now we're going to the lines. We've got a caller. What's your name and where are you from? My name is Chris, and I'm calling from Saskatchewan. Hey, Chris. You're on the line with Todd Stottlemyre. Hey, Todd. Pleasure to get a chance to chat with you. Chris, how are you doing, sir? Very, very well. Very well. Hey, listen, I uh, saw some tweets earlier on today. Uh, A friend of mine actually does some work with Ari as well. Uh, His name's Chris, too. And uh, he he was telling me that um, he was telling me that you guys were going to be doing this tonight. So I wanted to make sure I called. And a couple of us were talking about it over lunch. And uh, one guy mentioned that he had a baseball uh, with your face on it when we were, when he was a kid. And uh, I was just wondering, you know, what were the goofiest kind of merchandise things that you had to, that you had to come across your desk in your 
in the course of your career and perhaps afterwards. Wow, that's that's got to be one ugly baseball with my picture on it. <laughs> hey, look, you know, there's. I, I think that you know the whole uh, maybe memorabilia or little things that come up. You know, the bobblehead thing has been around a long time, but it always cracks me. And these whole bobblehead things kind of crack me up. I mean, I have collectors bobbleheads from from way back when, you know, back in the olden days. But, uh, you know, it's pretty crazy, you know, some of the things they can come up with. And, and uh, you know, look, the way I look at it is somebody wants to put my face on a baseball, it's like, hey, more power to them. But, uh, you know, great stuff. It's great little moments, I guess, little, you know, whatever you want to call them, uh, and, and mementos or whatever, great little things to kind of have hanging around. You know, what's funny is, I just turned around, I'm in my office, and I'm looking at something that's really cool. And you just mentioned that. I got I got out of my office, I got this big coffee mug that says 1992 World Champion, so that's obviously nice. a cool thing. And then I'm looking at this ticket, and just a minute, i got to read this now, because this is pretty cool. And I just, just happened to turn around, and I go, wow, there it is. Sunday, September 2nd, 1990, Toronto Blue Jays against the Cleveland Indians, what happened that day? I, I know we got you on the call. Now I'm asking you questions. Isn't this great? Yeah, no, <laughs> All right, so, and, and by the way, if you would have asked me this question, I would have been like, I have no idea. But I only know because <laughs> yeah. it has something to do with Dave Steve. Well, there you go. There you uh, go. Which, okay, well, which of course, was, was part of a tweet that I sent out, Todd, asking people to remember a seminal moment in baseball, and not surprisingly, it still gets amazing attention and the highest number of votes, what he did that afternoon. Glorious day. Yeah. Crazy. But the, guy that, the guy that threw so many, you know, had so many great games and came so close, you know, throwing one hitters in his career. Oh, right. Right. Did you see a lot of those, Todd? Did you see uh, Steve's uh, near misses, if you will? I think he had a total of three games where he lost the perfect game with uh, two outs in the ninth inning. Am I right about that? Does that yeah, sound accurate to you? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it was three. I know two for sure. And you know what's crazy is those games, those two games were back to back. That's right. Oh, they were. That's right. Roberto Kelly, I think, spoiled one of them. Uh, and I then I think that. the other yeah, one was, right. was the other one in Cleveland or was the other one against Cleveland maybe? I don't know. There was like a, one of the ones that was spoiled was a ground ball hit to Manny Lee. The ball hit oh, a rock and bounced right. over his head. And I was like, that's got to be harder to do than actually throwing back-to-back no-hitters. Fantastic memories. Chris, any other questions you have for, for Todd? Uh, you know, I'm always curious with just the way the game has evolved over the years. I'm, I'm curious if you feel that you – if you were to start the game as a rookie this year um, in today's day and age, if you feel that it would be a better, you know, if your career would go better or if it would go worse, just based on the way things have developed since your career? Well, I wish I wish I knew then what I know now. Um, I'll say that. <laughs> Fair enough. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you grow up and, and as you're growing up, you know, your parents are always wrong until you become a parent and you realize how right they were, right? And, <laughs> totally. and, and I, yeah, and it's kind of like, you know, what, I'll, I'll, Chris, I'll say this. You know, when I played in Toronto, I played in Toronto for seven seasons. I played on great teams, but I was a young guy. And being a young guy playing with a veteran club um, where I was expected to perform, I was trying to, 
find my way per se. And I actually didn't I actually didn't become the pitcher that I was supposed to be until after I left Toronto the second half of my career. And I was just up in Toronto not too long ago. I did a special luncheon for Canada Wide Sports and and they asked me, and I said, you know, the only regret that I have is, and I'm not a big believer where I look in the rearview rear mirror and look back and have regrets or this or that. I'm grateful for everything. And, and I'm grateful for my times in Toronto and, and some of the ups and downs and hardships and all of that. But I do wish uh, from the bottom of my heart that I would have pitched in Toronto like I did the second half of the season or second half of my career. The problem with that thinking is, is it's kind of like me saying right now, if I would have known then what I know now, I would have been a lot better pitcher. Uh, I would have been more composed. I would have looked at the game differently. Um, but at the end of the day, all the times that I spent in Toronto, it was necessary for me to go through those things personally so I could become what I was supposed to become in Major League Baseball. I just wish that the Toronto, the fans of the Toronto Blue Jays, and, and I wish on some of those clubs I would have been pitching to closer to my potential um, like I did after I left. So, uh, but that's a great question. You know, and the other thing I would tell you is, you know, every decade or every era, there's, there's, there's changes, there's things that happen. And, uh, you know, I kind of laugh and I say, well, the era I played in was like arena baseball and, and I'll leave that to your imagination. (laughs) (laughs) Ready, set, Spartan Race is back for 2018, and we're accepting no excuses. Barbed wire crawls, tire drags, spear throws, and much more. Whatever your ability, you'll discover the right challenge for you. Take on our 5 to 25 kilometer events designed to push you to limits you never knew you could overcome. Complete an obstacle course race and let adventure back into your life. Are you ready to unleash your inner Spartan warrior? Visit spartanrace.uk. <laughs> that's, that's a fair comment. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, Chris, thanks for thanks for calling in this evening. We really appreciate you joining the show. My pleasure. Thanks for taking my call. And Todd, uh, my, it was just uh, great to, to get a chance to speak with you. All the best to you. Hey, Chris. Yeah, man. Take care, my friend. Yep, you bet. Take care. Now, Todd, you're no stranger to adversity. Tell me the story behind that 12 and 24 start under Cito Gaston uh, in '89. And of course, it wasn't under Cito because it was Jimmy Williams. What happened after Cito came into that room, and how were you able to find the resiliency to end up winning a division? Crazy times, I'll say this, that, uh, you know, we were an underachieving baseball team under Jimmy Williams' tutelage there in, in 1989 after we got to the start. And, and it, you know, it was one of those situations where the organization really had done a great job of putting some special talent together. And, uh, you know, we were underachieving. We just weren't playing well. Mm-hmm. Things weren't going our way. And, and you know, I can't point to any one thing. Uh, I will say that uh, I remember when Jimmy Williams was let go. It was my second year. It was 1989, you know, so it's my second year. And, and I'm pitching kind of sparingly and, and not doing great, not doing poor, just very kind of average, but not not pitching anywhere close to my potential. And, Cito Gaston takes over as the interim manager, and on his first day as the interim manager, um, he is told and that it's he's got to send me to AAA. So I would tell mm-hmm. you, uh, intern manager, now i got to send a guy back down to AAA. Probably not a great assignment or probably not a fun assignment for Cito at the time, but 
you know, he had to do what he had to do. And, and I remember being very frustrated. But what was crazy is is uh, 30 days later, I got called back to Toronto and uh, ended up pitching, uh, you know, pretty decent um, to finish out the year. Ended up pitching game two of the playoffs. But I would just tell you that, you know, when I got back, I mean, this club got on a run. And we started to have this belief. We just started to play the game. And everybody was loose. And all the expectations of what we were supposed to do had kind of disappeared because of the slow start. And then we actually started playing the way we were supposed to be playing. So I would tell you that, you know, sometimes the change uh, shakes things up. And in this case, case, uh, unfortunately for Jimmy Williams, the shakeup was, you know, him being fired. And I would tell you that, Cito Gaston was absolutely, for that ball club, was absolutely the perfect manager. And he was a player's manager. Everybody respected him. And we just began to uh, go about our business and start to start to win one series at a time. Matter of fact, I remember Cito said, so listen, we, we're, we're, wherever we are right now, that's where we're at. Let's just focus on every series and just try to win each series. And next thing you know, we climbed right back into it. That's one of those inspirational stories that I think maybe some present-day Blue Jays might need to hear because there's yeah, been, this as you is can the imagine. Time they could, yeah, to me, if I'm in that locker room, I, I, can't, I, I can't look at my – see, here's what I'll tell you. The record up to right now is history. That can't be changed. See, the only thing that can be changed is what we do from this day forward. And the only thing that can be changed is our attitude and our gratitude for that uniform and go out and lay it on the line – and just play every game like it's your last one, and then let the chips fall where they may. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, if you can get 25 guys with that mindset, that attitude, guess what can happen? Well, then the real talent comes out, and then you start to see what, what the ball, ball club is really capable of doing. But to even think about or even talk about, if I was in that locker room, I'd be like, I don't want to talk about yesterday. We can talk about who we're playing today or the opposing pitcher or this or that. But yesterday I can't change. It's history. we got to move on. And right now this ball club has got to move on from this slow start and take it one day at a time, one series at a time, and see what happens. Do you ever get the impression watching them that uh, some of these battles against these ALEs teams bring back fond memories when you see an Orioles uniform or a Red Sox uniform and, of course, the Yankees uniform in particular? Well, you know, uh, early on, you know, it, was, it wasn't it was so much the Yankees that were your battling. You know, uh, early on, it was the Boston Red Sox. If you remember, you know, uh, they, they, had, they had the team that we had to beat or, uh, or they had to beat us to win. And so, you know, there was some pretty cool. But for me, it was, it was always special pitching against and playing against the Yankees, yeah. uh, even in my early days. <clears throat> Excuse me. In my early days. But... Uh, and then the Orioles, you know, when I think of Orioles, I, one guy comes to mind, or maybe a couple guys, Eddie Murray and Cal Ripken Jr. How don't you, when you think of Baltimore Orioles, how don't you think about those two guys, right? Um, and then when I think about the New York Yankees back there during that time, I think of Don Mattingly. And, and, and uh, so pretty crazy, uh, great, great stars we were competing against and that sort of thing. So, uh, mm-hmm. but a lot of fun, a lot of fun, Ari. You brought up some intriguing names to me. Obviously, Cal Ripken 
is legendary for what he did in the sport, but you brought up Eddie Murray, and I'm always amazed, Todd, at how Eddie Murray flies under the radar for so many modern-day baseball fans. You're talking about, I think, one of only five players in the history of the game with with 3,000 hits and 500 home runs. And yet, if I were to ask people to name those five, I don't think Eddie Murray gets named in, in virtually 99% of responses. What were your thoughts on him as a player? Well, he was the quiet storm, you know. I mean, when I say what I mean by that is, you know, he might not have been a guy that uh, – he he just showed up, did his job, and got his hits. And, you know, I mean, it was just crazy. And and uh, went about his business, and, and he might not have had the flair uh, of that stardom like maybe some of the guys do today. So, um, you know, it's, it's – uh, you know, obviously he was – he was something else, but I think that also, you know, Cal and 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 because of his streak and that whole deal too. It's like, you know, when you just think, I, I, I for me anyway, when I think Baltimore Orioles, I think Cal Ripken Jr. and and I think that you know he he also deserves that. I mean, here's a guy that played through every illness, uh, no days off, and every injury, every ache, and and uh, <laughs> that streak where. He played every day, but you know what was fascinating was back in the day, uh, they actually took infield every day. <laughs> oh, and I know wow. today before before the game, they don't always take infield, right? And But back in the day, they took infield every day, and it was like, you know, you'd be sitting there, and the Orioles would be doing their infield, and there's Cal Ripken Jr. He not only didn't miss a game, he didn't min- miss an infield practice. Amazing. So, Amazing. Yeah, the guy was phenomenal, and just the way he went about his business and played the game. I mean, the ultimate professional. Well, and I'm sure you probably felt some kinship coming from a baseball family. I mean, his his younger brother also played on the team. Didn't, at one point, both his brother and his father play on the same team together back in the late 80s? So, both of, so Billy Ripken and Cal Ripken played together, and their dad was the third base coach at the time. That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. It also probably made yeah. for some really great dinner table conversation after a game if things didn't go well, I'm sure. For sure. <laughs> Can you imagine you're sitting at the table and it's like, all right, son. No, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the other son. <laughs> well, and something tells me that one son somehow always ended up getting a little bit more attention. But I guess that's just the nature of families and competitive yep, sports. For sure. We're we're speaking with Todd Stottlemyre. The number to call is 646-787-8521. Taking your calls. Speaking of former players, Todd, you, you brought up uh, Murray, and that Im- immediately made me think of another player that I tweeted out today on my Twitter account. I, I was talking about uh, Tony Gwynn, who for me growing up in my childhood was the gold standard, the seminal hitter that was so cerebral and so dynamic that as a pitcher, you just kind of took your lumps, as they say. You just knew that the average of getting a player out goes up a lot higher with someone who finished his career being arguably you could make a case one of the top three hitters of all time. Uh, Of course, this is the anniversary of his retirement, and sadly, he passed away recently. I'm wondering if maybe you could share some memories about your experiences in facing Tony Gwynn in the National League and your thoughts about hitters of his breed or ilk just simply disappearing from the game today, given all the focus on power and and big swings. Yeah, so, um, man, wow. What, What a special special guy you know uh rest in peace my friend uh and and what a what a special guy what an incredible talent you know 
Um, I tell you something that's I watched him do an interview one time, and the, and and I don't know whether it was ESPN or, but it was some sports network uh, was doing a, a special show on Tony Gwynn, and and they actually had you know the cameras and 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 they talked to him about how he studied opposing pitchers and how he watched the film of them pitching against him. And I remember watching this. And what I realized by watching this is Tony Gwynn looks for a ball in certain parts of the zone depending on who he's hitting against. And he had such a study. So it didn't necessarily mean a certain pitch, but a certain zone. And I remember watching that, and I remember thinking to myself that whatever I think I should throw Tony Gwynn, I should do the opposite. So if I think I should throw him a fastball in, I should throw him a fastball away. If I think I should throw him a fastball away, I should probably throw him a fastball in. Because he's thinking right along with me, and he has studied every one of my patterns. And, and I remember when I was pitching against him, I said, whatever I think, whatever I think I should be throwing right here in this situation, I'm just going to throw the opposite. <laughs> and you know what's funny is it works for a little bit, right? <laughs> But he was so, I mean, he was so good. And he was, and he was the, he was an, I don't know what his batting average was when they, when a pitcher had two strikes on him, but you were a long ways from getting him out. You know, the percentages, when you get two strikes on a hitter, start to really favor uh, towards a pitcher, especially if he's ahead in the count, but not with Tony Gwynn. You know, there's only a handful of hitters Mm. that I can say that about. And Tony Gwynn was one of them. Barry Bonds was another one. It was almost like when you got them two strikes, they actually got better. <laughs> they didn't get worse. They got better, and they got tougher to get them out when they got two strikes than versus maybe sometimes when they were more aggressive earlier in the strike zone. So Tony Gwynn was a phenomenal talent. Uh, he was one of a kind, that's for sure. And, and what's especially fascinating in hearing you say that is knowing that he had a, I believe, a 4.2% strikeout rate in his career. I mean, just getting him to swing at a bad pitch was a fantasy for a lot of pitchers. And I know watching you when I was younger, you, you liked to bust hitters on the inside with a fastball after throwing them a lot of stuff on the outside. Gwyn could take that outside pitch and basically put it wherever he wanted in left or right field. It was really amazing, wasn't it? Incredible. Absolutely. Absolutely incredible, and that's the thing. And if Tony knew and he'd watched my patterns and he knew I was coming in early or, or going away late and coming in late or whatever, whatever pattern, he, he would pick the place that was the closest to his sweet spot or strength, and he would just sit on, not on the pitch, he would sit in that zone and he would just look for the ball in that zone. And if you threw the ball in that zone, he was going to do damage. He didn't miss it too often. Now, I want to turn my attention to something that I saw on Twitter from you, in particular a quote from Jim Rohn where you tweeted, motivation is what gets you started, habit is what keeps you going. Is that a mantra you admired as an aspiring pitcher, and what message can you offer to someone who likes to dream but doesn't really act on their ambitions? Yeah, you know, it's actually chapter two in my book, Relentless Success, and and I talk about behaviors and and chapter one, obviously, I start talking about the goal, the dream, the desire. But uh, in order to achieve something different, we got to do something different. And, um, 
you know, one of, one of the things in, in, in that Jim Rohn quote, motivation, right, it's like, it's kind of like, okay, you get so excited, I'm going to do something new. Maybe I'm going to try to break a record if I'm running a company. We're going to try to increase sales. And you get all excited and, and you get everybody around and you get everybody motivated. But when they leave the motivation, guess what happens? We fall back right into our old patterns if we don't change our patterns. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the simple things, and, it, and it's the simple behaviors done consistently over time where those behaviors become habits is when we start stair-stepping towards our goals and dreams. But without those new behaviors, without those new habits, motivation will get us started. Habit will keep us going, right? So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a, I, 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 look, I love to get excited and motivated, but at the end of the day, when we're motivated, say, okay, what's the plan? Because what are we going to do? And that action plan is sometimes the most important. Speaking with Todd Stottlemyre, former Blue Jay, three-time World Series winner, and writer of a fantastic book that we're going to talk about at length as we, as we spend the evening with him. Let me ask you about your new book, which is called Relentless Success Through Triumph and Tragedy. Now, on the surface, that, that really leaves a lot to, to digest. Is this a heavy book? How would, you, how would you tell people to approach your book in terms of, you know, how limited people's attention span can be? What is it about your book that maybe gives them the ability to access what you have to say a little bit easier than someone else who might be writing a book? Well, number one, it's the easiest read in the world. So it's 150 pages. I mean, we, have, we delivered some books to some people that uh, either gave me some endorsements or some of our close friends early on. And I said, hey, man, I want you to read, check out the book. Read, we read the book. And and, you know, our friends were excited to read the book. And, and there were people that would get on a flight and have a two-and-a-half, three-hour flight, and they would call me at the end of the flight and say, I finished it. Now, it's, a, it's only 150 mm. pages long, and they're like and, – and, and one guy in particular, he's a really close friend of mine, and this guy, because um, I write about Chapter 3, about being your why and about being one of the major nine steps to achievement – and I talk about the tragic event of losing my little brother, uh, how I gave him a bone marrow transplant when I was 15. Mm. He was 11. He was battling leukemia. Uh, his body rejected my marrow, ended up putting him into a coma, and then he passed. And, and at 15, I, not, I didn't just have the traditional sadness, uh, although I, did, I was very sad. I, I had anger and I had guilt. And those, the anger and the guilt, those two emotions stayed with me forever now it took me a long time it took me more greater than a decade to start healing through that guilt and that anger and i write about this story in the book about how i felt and the things i went through so i would tell you if you and and my friend who read the book he said to me he was crying when he called me he says taught and he had lost his son to sid at five and a half months old. And when, you're, when you lose a child or a sibling, you go through tragedy, man. And it's tough to overcome. And he said to me, he was crying. He says, man, I just want you to know something. And we've become really close friends, you know, prior to him reading the book, obviously. And he says, you know, you've changed my life. But what you've done this time is you are going to change the lives of so many people who read this book because of chapter three. See, it's not just about baseball. It's about life. It's about real lessons. It's about real events, real tragedies, real, real triumphs. 
It's not the Cinderella story. It's just real stories that I went through where in each step represents a path to success. doesn't matter what field it is. You can be a stay-at-home mom. I believe that if you apply the nine steps inside your family, you're going to have a better family or you're going to have a better household. I believe that if it's in sports, you can take these nine steps, you can read these stories, and, and, and it's going to be easy to apply because the stories are what to make you understand the steps to where you yeah, go, I sure. get it, I for understand. Sure. You know, so many times, you know, somebody will stand on a pedestal and they'll say, okay, you've got to go do this. And I'm like, okay, i got to go do that, but show me. Don't just tell me and show me why, show me the benefit. And that's the book, Relentless Success, because I don't just tell you about nine steps. I tell you about the stories of me going through those steps, how I was thinking, how I was feeling, and the people around me that were helping me get from one step to the next step that ultimately created success in multiple industries. So I believe you can, whether you run a company, whether you have a job, whether you're an athlete, whether you're a kid in high school, uh, I got I got my teenagers reading the book, and 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 uh, I just think it's so important. And by the way, you know it says nine point you know system for for a major league achievement. Look, the the steps to success are simple. It just takes time, and you got to do the daily mundane over and over and over until you become extraordinary at your craft. And when you become extraordinary at your craft. You create so much value to the marketplace that you become more successful. It's that, it, it's really that simple, but mm-hmm. it just takes somebody with the discipline, the desire, the commitment, and the persistence to see through the system. Let's take a call now. The number to call in is 646-787-8521. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hello, my name is Carl. I'm calling from Mississauga. Carl from Mississauga, you're on the on the line with Todd Stottlemyer. Go ahead. Carl, how are you, Hi, Todd. Sir? How are you? Man, I'm great. Um, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. I have a question for you. It's a two-part question. Um, I, I read in your bio that uh, you really watched your money and invested it properly throughout your career. Um, uh, so this is going to uh, go to my two-part question. How much does Major League Baseball tell their athletes to invest their money wisely um, and vice versa? How many athletes are really making that many mistakes and poorly investments or have so many people latching onto them for money? Like you hear too many times guys that have made, I mean, $50, $60 million and, mm. and they get bankrupt like five five years after their playing career. How much of that do you think is the responsibility of Major League Baseball versus the actual athlete himself? Good question. Wow. That is the most amazing question. So I would tell you that uh, I think Major League Baseball and I think all sports, uh, I would tell you I, I, I believe in my mind and they have like rookie camps and education and that sort of thing. I think they do a better job of educating the athlete, but they don't cross the line. And they don't cross the line and tell a guy that, hey, you got to use these people as financial advisors or agents. And that's mm-hmm. still left up to the player's hands. Now, when you leave no. it up to the player's hands, here's what traditionally happens a friend of the family 
becomes the agent or the financial guy. Now, the problem with that is not that it's a friend of the family, but a lot of times the friend of the family is not the most qualified, but the family or that closeness and the trust that, that maybe the family has with it, it's like, man, how can we not use our friend? When they're yeah. not truly, they might not even be the most qualified. I'll give you a, uh-huh. a, a really good example. How could you hire an accountant, right, that doesn't understand the tax laws in multiple countries, multiple cities, and multiple states? Because as, mm-hmm. as an athlete, when you play in Canada, you're, you're taxed by the Canadian government and the U.S. government. When you play in New York, you're, Canadian, you're taxed by the federal government. You're taxed by New York State and New York City. So you better have the most qualified accountant in the world. Otherwise, you're going to have an IRS problem when you're done playing the game. I believe it's a problem. I don't know from an institutional standpoint, Major League Baseball, the NHL, NBA, I don't know what they can and can't do because of – this is going to sound ridiculous, right? But because of laws or what they can or have the power to, I know they're educating – but the problem is kind of like you're still you're still relying on the player or the player's family when they're young to try to make the the right the right situations. Now look here here's what else I'll tell you on that. And you you said something that was <laughs> genius. And by the way, I made this mistake. I can't even tell you how many times. How many times did you have a friend with a palm facing up, <laughs> saying, "Hey man, I got this <laughs> idea." Right, and I got this idea, and I only need twenty five thousand, or I only need ten thousand. And I say only because when you look at the salaries, I, look, that's a lot of money. Let, let's not. I don't. I, let me tell you something. I won't. I won't walk past a penny on the ground without bending down to pick it up, for God's sake. Because <laughs> I grew. That's the way I grew up. But I made all those same mistakes. And yeah. you know what was funny is I was, I was an incredible steward when I was playing the game of the money that we were making. Now, look, I lived a great life while I was playing, you know. I bought a nice home. I bought a nice car. I mean, I never bought the Ferraris and overspent that way. But, hey, I had nice things. Let me just put it to you that way, all right? Yes. And after my career, I got into the business world. I was actually, uh, I built an asset management team, an investment team, uh, left the firm and launched a hedge fund. And then we started building businesses. And, hey, guess what? I, I, and it's not that I'm smart. I don't claim to be smart, just persistent. And and I got caught in the same economic storm everyone else got caught in. But it was yeah. only because of my model that I survived it without having to go through some sort of hardship like a bankruptcy. And my model was a diversified model. I had private companies. I had public companies. I had bonds. I had international stock. I had domestic mm-hmm. stock. I had my investment portfolio was across so many different companies and so many different classes of investment that it allowed me to survive. A lot of people didn't survive the economic storm. And what I mean didn't survive, completely lost everything. Now, I will tell you, I also had to start over at rebuilding the fortune. (laughs) You know, it's like, hey, a lot of the zeros, fell off the back in that economic storm, and it was a domino effect that I couldn't stop. And we owned companies and employed people, and we had good businesses that went away. See, even some good businesses went away, even some sound. So you can get caught in traps, but I would tell you, there's 
typically, I'll say nine times out of ten, or maybe 9.9 times out of a ten, when your friend has got his palm up and he's got a great idea, it's not time <laughs> to grease his palm. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? It's like walk away from that one every time. You know, and so if you missed out on an opportunity, big deal. Hey Todd, if if I'm if I'm gonna get into the baseball okay, let's say my son is a good athlete and he's getting into the baseball world, like is he looking are we looking independently or are we looking towards our agent to at least lead us in the right direction? Like who getting into the major league baseball, there there's big dollars now. Who are we going to yeah. lean more towards? Like, um, I mean, is it still you're on your own and, and find your path, or is your are are agents more educated, or or is it still uh, you know dog eats dog world out there? Uh, I would say that it's ten times better than it was a decade ago. A decade mm-hmm. ago, it was ten times probably better than the decade before that. Um, I would tell you that I I believe in my heart of hearts. There are, there are by the way. Um, I know agents get a bad rap. There are some great agents, by the way, in the yep. industry. and and But they're professionals. I would tell you this. Uh, if if you got a son, if he's involved in the sport, look, i got an 11-year-old son. If he gets to the point where he's ever good enough that uh, we're going to need an agent, we're going to need a financial team, I guess my son's advantage is, is that he's got a father that is going to put some people through the OI test a couple of different times, right? So, yeah. um, you know, I'm going to want to know, it's like, uh, don't tell me what you're going to do for my son. Tell me what you've done for the players prior to having my son. And show me your history. Show me your track record. And not your track record for winning negotiations. Just your track record as a human being. See, I want to know that, the people I'm going to align my son with are going to be ethical and they're moral and they have integrity and they're, and they have a solid business and they have a solid background because that's who, look, that's who we want to marry our kids with in that sense. But the agents, a lot of times, now some of the agents, uh, I would tell you, in my opinion, they do a great job. They don't have a buddy in the financial world that they're greasing. And Mm -hmm. so, I'm always cautious of that. I'm like, well, how many of your players are using that financial? Well, how many different financial guys are you going to refer me to? And so these yeah. are the questions I would ask. So if your son is like, and you and you got you you guys hire an agent at some point, and and I, mm-hmm. that's one of the first things I would talk about because look, we're no one plays the game forever, so we have yeah. to save. We can't. And you know, I always tell people the 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 way to financial freedom is. As you make more money, right, and as, you're, as the money grows, just don't allow your lifestyle to grow at the same rate. Yeah. And if you can keep your – let me tell you the greatest lesson. I'm going to give you a book. You, this be a, I have my kids read this book, The Richest Man in Babylon. This, this, this book can be read literally in one setting. And it just talks about when you go out and earn a dollar, pay yourself as a bill first. And I got to take mm-hmm. ten cents or or twenty cents of that dollar, and I got to put it away, and I'm not allowed to touch it. And that ten cents or twenty cents of that dollar, right, has to earn mm-hmm. some sort of interest where I can't touch it for my lifestyle. Listen, over twenty yeah. years period of doing that, you can build wealth, and you'll build freedom, and you'll build protection, 
But guess what that takes? Discipline. Discipline. If you don't have the discipline when you're making a little bit of money, you're not going to have the discipline when you're making a lot of money. Because think about it. What if you all of a sudden you, you go from zero like they do in sports today. You go from zero to a million dollars. Are you going to pay 100000 to yourself as a bill, set it aside, and you're not allowed to touch it for 20, 30 years? Most people are like, no, they're going to buy a car. They're going to buy a house. They're going to buy mom and dad a house. They're going to buy their girlfriend a house. They're going to buy the girlfriend's mom and dad a house. They're going to buy them a car. And next thing you know, oh, damn, I forgot I was supposed to pay taxes. I'm out of money. And there's a problem. Unfortunately, Todd, we lost Carl. The call dropped. Maybe he'll call back. But that that's a really interesting point you raise. I mean, I got to tell you, the first two callers that we've taken tonight, I didn't. I don't think you expected this range of potential subject matter. <laughs> hey, the people of really- Canada are awesome, man. I love oh. them, man. That, and by the way, Carl, <laughs> I'll just tell you, Carl had some great questions, and 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 you know, Carl might listen to this later on. And I would just tell you, man, do your homework, dig in. Uh, go have multiple meetings with advisors and, and just look into the history of who they've represented in companies, Carl. And, uh, you know, just make sure, you know, like I say, hey, if it's, if it's my son, I'm going to help my son go through that process with him because what kind of wisdom can a young kid have when they got millions of dollars being thrown at them? And that's, sure. that's difficult. So, And the salaries are getting loopy, aren't they, Todd? I mean, uh when you talk about speculation here around these parts, you look at, you look at Josh. <laughs> they Carlson, are astronomical. <laughs> they really are. And, and if you happen to hit the jackpot by coming up for free agency at just the right time in your career, it's amazing what could happen. Uh, and I'm curious to wonder your, your thoughts on the fact that obviously the younger the player is, you look at somebody like a Mike Trout or a Manny Machado, the sky's the, the limit for them in terms of what they'll make throughout the course of a lifetime in baseball. But for players who are a little bit older, like a Josh Donaldson, who's in their early, mid-30s, reaching a point where the pundits start talking about regression, how much stock do you give to player regression? I mean, you've played with some older players. I mean, heck, you played with Dave mm-hmm. Winfield, and we all know that at 40 he was just getting stronger and stronger. But how much, uh, right. how much credence do you give to that argument that, hey, you should not worry about signing this guy because he's too old, or you're, you're, you're taking a contract that might be a long-term commitment that could backfire if he gets injured? Yeah, the... I don't know how you project human talent that way, to be honest with you. That's, I mean, that'd be the multi-million dollar question. If we could answer that, we would have something, we'd have our hands on something because there's a couple things, you know, health, right. Uh, is, is obviously there's, there's always, um, you know, a big risk with health and, sure. and not only short-term injury, but long-term injury or career ending injury. So you have that piece. And here's, how you, here's another thing that we can't identify, right? We can't identify the, the strength of a man or woman's heart to compete year after year. So it's kind of like, does something change when somebody's financially set? Does something change in the way they play the game? Does something change in the way they approach the game? Mm-hmm. See, I don't... I, I wish, man, imagine, imagine if we could figure that dynamic out. And I know fans are, are the biggest skeptics of this. It's like, oh, 
the guy got paid all that money and now he doesn't run the first base as hard or he got paid all that money, right? I mean, look, I understand it. I get it. And which is why I always had the attitude, my dad gave this and installed this into us, is you play every game like it's going to be your last one and you leave everything you have on the field, whether it was good or bad, leave it on the field. And, but I, there's no, there's no measurement system for somebody's mindset and heart set once they're financially free. You know, you, 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 you're kind of hoping that, that the pride of professionalism and the pride in trying to become the best. Now, look, I, I would tell you that I don't know what the percentages are. I have no idea that when somebody's financially free, do they have the same hunger pain to be the best? I don't know. I would tell you that I played with some ex- guys that were extraordinary that made uh, uh, lots of money, and they continue to strive for excellence. Randy Johnson comes to mind. It's like the guy mm-hmm. was financially set and for 10, 20 different lifetimes. But you put him on that mound 60 feet, 6 inches from a hitter, and he was staring death into that hitter. It didn't matter how much money he had in the bank. So, I mean, I just don't know how to measure that. And it's interesting that you're coining that phrase of measuring heart because you look at someone like a Marcus Stroman here in Toronto, five foot eight diminutive pitcher right now battling as we speak to get his team back in contention. Uh, I think it's safe to say you can never truly underestimate what a baseball player brings to the table. What's the Todd Stottlemyre short list of players you've played with? Give me three or maybe five names of players that you remember as being particularly powerful with their leadership skills and leading by example and being a great, a great baseball character. Man, I played with I, I played with so many. I was so blessed to play with so many. Paul Mulder, uh when you say leadership, uh, integrity, student, somebody who just went about things the right way, you know, Paul Mulder was one of those guys. And we were lucky enough to, I was lucky enough to have him as a teammate in 93 when we won a world championship. And, uh, you know, Dave Winfield, absolutely one of those guys. Um, you know, we had some incredible people, the Tom Hankies, uh, and, and that were a part of the club, the Jimmy Keys that were part of the club, the Dave Steves, uh, Jack Morris came over, not only gifted and great, but they were always striving to get better. Uh, you know, I played with the great Ozzie Smith in St. Louis, and I played with the great Willie McGee in St. Louis. And these two guys, it didn't matter, man. When they put that uniform on, it was all about winning, and it was all about having the edge, and it was all about studying the game. In Texas, I played with Will Clark. He was one of those guys. I mean, uh, I played in Oakland, obviously, and Toronto with both Ricky Henderson and Dave Stewart. Those two guys would definitely, you know, uh, they jump out at me. Um, I mean, I was just so lucky that uh, I, I played with so many people that were not only gifted, but they were just the ultimate professional and they were the most incredible leader by not what they said, but, but the way they played the game. I was blessed to have some incredible teammates. Mm. Now, you mentioned Dave Stewart, and I have nothing but fond memories of what he did as a Toronto Blue Jays pitcher. Of course, he was at his dominant best with the Oakland Athletics, which explained why Pat Gillick and Paul Beeston viewed him as an important cog in the wheel to go after world championship. 
And he was, of course, known for his legendary death stare. And I'm sure as a hitter, looking into those eyes left a lot of hitters frustrated and angry during that four or five-year stretch where he pretty much dominated the American League. I noticed you also had that bulldog mentality. When you got up there, you were one of those pitchers that just looked like he had an indomitable will and was going to use whatever body language and, and indications to overpower the hitter with some intimidation. Was that a conscious thing? Is that something that you were trying to do out there, or were you just kind of being yourself and that was a consequence? Yeah, you know, I I, uh, I actually learned and was mentored, and I spent, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours, if not thousands of hours, uh, with Dave Stewart or watching Dave Stewart. And he was that guy for me in my career. And, uh, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't a stare uh, for intimidation purposes. And although when you looked at Dave, he looked a lot more intimidating than I did. And, you know, he was that guy that was like, wow. Right. I mean, he had, such presence on that mound and uh but his stare was a stare of complete focus and 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 i call it all about being in the zone and where that focus is where your eyes man it's almost like they're bleeding that catcher's glove and they're bleeding of this intensive focus um where truly uh, I call it being in the zone where the world is silenced and 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 that focus and that stare can come off as uh maybe uh based on the perception of the hitter maybe maybe there is some intimidation in it I don't know um that wasn't the idea. The idea is a hundred percent focus on the task at hand, and the task at hand is what am I gonna do with the next pitch? Because as a pitcher, the second the ball leaves your hand, you're now out of control. So you only have control of the pitch and of your mind and of your heart and of this whole focus while the ball is in the hand. So, And the second you lose that focus, just for a second, it takes too long to regain the focus, and that's when you get into trouble in an inning. And that's where sometimes you'll see a guy, and I – I was famous for this early in my career in Toronto. Yeah, you know, I go out there for four innings and just mow through hitters, and next thing you know, I can't get out of the fifth. What happened? Well, did the hitters catch up to me? No, I lost my focus. Or maybe for a second, you know, I relaxed, and then it took me too long to get back to that intense focus. And, when it, and, if, and if it takes you too long to get back to the intense focus, guess what? It's Major League Baseball, man. Those guys are so good on the other side. You can't let your guard down for one second. That's it. And to think it just looks so easy on television, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Hey, man, I'm a lot better pitcher today than I was ever when I put that <laughs> uniform on. <laughs> I laugh about it all the time, you know. That's great. It's so great. I watch, I watch ball games with my dad, and we'll sit there and we'll watch a – We'll watch a baseball game, and we laugh. We go, look how easy it looks. <laughs> you know? let's, uh, let's go back to the phone lines and, and see who we've got. Um, what's your name, and where are you from? That's Paul from Vaughn. Hey, Paul. You're on the line with Todd Stottlemyre. Thanks for taking my call, and uh, what a pleasure this is speaking to you, Todd. Big fan. Paul, uh, great uh, talking with you, sir. How's it? Oh, it's going good. I, I, you might hear my daughter in the background. I think she's excited to, uh, to about you being on the show as well here. 
So please forgive me if she starts hollering and trying to get them in and out no of the bathroom. But I did want to miss a chance to say, uh, say hi and throw a question. I, I, I got uh, caught the end of your conversation uh, just now, so it kind of falls into what my, what my question was, but I didn't get to hear the whole, whole conversation, so, so pardon me if it's the same, uh, same kind of question. But I was just watching the Cubs recently, and John Lester's last start. And mm-hmm. he's got the case of the yips throwing the first base, like Steve Sachs and uh, Steve Blass and, and Chuck Knobloch and that. I was wondering, for you, I mean, were you always dialed in, or was there a, a team, was there a player, and you're just like, I, I, I just can't, I can't find the zone, or I can't throw the base. Um, I was just wondering, like, or a teammate that you've ever played with, uh, how, do you, how do you beat that, and, and how does it even happen? Yeah, well, man, that's a great question. You know, I was – I, I, I tell you, I don't, I don't take it for granted. I'm, I'm so blessed and so grateful that I didn't have to go through um, that deal. You know, we call it the yips, and it's like, yeah. And and we can, we can remember Knobloch, we can remember Steve Sachs. Uh, uh, how about the, uh, the pitcher? Actually, he just wrote a book uh, called The Phenomenon. Uh, um, I'm trying to think right now of his name. Uh, Rick Ankiel from the St. Louis Cardinals, where the yip showed up in the playoffs where the whole world was watching the yips. Right. And I, my heart just sunk for this guy. And then it was so bad, he ended up becoming an outfielder, actually, in the major leagues. And he turned That's out right. to be a pretty good outfielder, right? And and I had a catcher one time, and, and not in Toronto, another club. And I don't want to say his name. I don't want to make him, you know, well, I, it doesn't matter who it is. but And he got to a point where he had a hard time throwing the ball back to the pitcher. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> And I will tell you something, that there were some studies done, and I don't have evidence of this, but I, I, I'm told that there were some studies done that if you look at those guys that have yips or get the yips at some point, and it just shows up. And sometimes it'll show up, and you didn't know you were going to show up with it. And they did some studies, and I don't know how scientific these studies are, but it was almost as they found something. This is going to sound crazy. They found something in their childhood that was somehow something that bothered them or some wound or something in their past that they never healed, and then it comes out that way. Now, look, I know what I just said. Wow. Crazy. <laughs> but, but if you look at the Rick Ankiel case, and you go back and look at the history and of some of the situations of family, you could say, well, is it relatable? And so I don't know how scientific that study is, but it's pretty crazy. I know this, that once you get it, it is so – because you got to remember, man, you're playing in front of maybe 30, 40, 50,000 people live – and then people watching, not counting the audience or the people watching on TV. Imagine that. I, I'm watching these leadoffs, and I'm like, he's almost at, first, at second base. He's halfway there. This is this is such a disservice. And then I, he keeps getting out of it. Like, he's such a great pitcher. But I'm like, in the playoffs, he's not throwing the first. And you can see his, just, his, his heart is pounding up there, and he's hoping for a double play ball fast. And I'm just, I, yeah. I don't know. I'm just, it, it just happens overnight to me. But it's very interesting about the kids' things. My wife says I have the yips with the, when it comes to the laundry. So maybe uh, <laughs> there's something going on there. But, there you go. It just shows you how, 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 how control you have to be. And, and, and uh, it's such a mental game. 
Well, I'll tell you, you, you nailed it. I mean, obviously, um, you know, you can you can always outwork talent, first of all, right? And but there are there are some gifted athletes that and there's no question maybe more athletic ability in this and that. And I always say, Hey, if you're going up against somebody with more ability, you just gotta outwork them and then it levels the playing field. But I'll say this, take the physical piece out of the game. And that thing, that that brain and that mind that you have uh, in between those six inches that, you know, is in the middle of those ears, that thing is what controls it. And I'm going to tell you something. I'll say this, and this will kind of give you the right perspective. I played with some guys in the minor leagues that could throw harder. They had better breaking balls than me. They threw harder. They had more physical talent, and they couldn't make it. And the reason they couldn't make it, they couldn't take it between their ears. Mm. So there are, there are some, there, I'm going to tell you something right now. There is some extraordinary talent in the minor leagues that you say, man, this guy is a shoe-in. And you start measuring his potential, and then there's a problem. And maybe he has a hard time failing in front of forty or 50,000 people, and he can't deal with failure. Or maybe he, he he has a hard time has such a hard time dealing with failure that he can't overcome it from game to game. Whatever it is, and and you know I talk about it in life. Uh, the way to win massively in life is to fail as often and as fast as you can, and then learn from each failure and take the next step. That's how you get to the top of the mountain. Interesting. Mm. Good advice. Oh, I'm really looking stuff. forward to your book. I can't wait to read it. And, uh, yeah, and I'm glad you, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And I pr- listen, I'm glad you brought it up. I appreciate mm-hmm. it. I poured my heart into it. I had no intentions of writing the book. Uh, the reason <laughs> I, I did is I spent, I spent, I spent some time with my father, and he inspired me like never before. I do want to say that uh, obviously you can go to Amazon.ca and this and that and get the book. For anybody who wants an autographed copy. Uh, for the first 2,500, and I got to tell you, I've been running this for about a week, and the books are flying off the shelf. But for the first 2,500, and I have books in stock right now, you can go to ToddOfficial.com, and I'll autograph the book for anybody who wants an autograph book. Wow. Sold. ToddOfficial.com. Oh, does that work for you? And there's only, like I said, I'm only going to do it for the first 25. I'm just running this thing up right up to the launch of the book. So. Uh, I know the book, all books bought on Amazon uh, prior to the first are being sent out, I believe, or people will receive them by July 3rd before the 4th of July weekend, which will be great. But uh, uh, and in any case, um, you know, I got an assembly team here at my house. I sign books, they package them, and boom, and they're shipping <laughs> them out. So you can go to ToddOfficial.com. Our family, my family, I got my girls helping me, my 14-year-old, my 16-year-old, and my wife. They're my assembly team, and they're like – they said to me, they said, Dad, what would you do if we weren't doing this? And I said, I don't know, but this is a family business, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and that's probably that awesome. in the book, right? It's probably warm like that in the book. Well, you know, like I said, I, 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 I've, I've taken a lot of, uh, you know, I poured my heart out. I, I told some stories in the book that I, were, I, I believe were necessary. They were hard to tell. Um I'm working on the audio book as we speak, and uh, because 
and and we were going to hire the talent, and I decided, I said, how unfair to somebody that bought my book that it didn't hear me telling the story and reading it myself. So uh, I've been working hard at, at, at doing the audio book, and, and hopefully it'll come out in maybe in a month or so or whatever. But uh, there's some tough stories, man, even today for me to read Chapter 3 about my little brother. It's a, it's a tough story for me to mm-hmm. read and yet not to, not to have all of those feelings. So um, I'm proud of it. I know it's going to be uh, – uh, uh, there's some great stories. I believe that for some people it will be, you know – and there's baseball stories, there's life stories, there's stories on the field, off the field, growing up. Uh, I tried to touch it all, but I tried to make sure that the stories were relatable to the lesson that needs to be learned in that chapter. So I'm grateful, sir, for you for you coming on and, and hanging out with us tonight. And uh, I really appreciate it. Wonderful. Oh, my pleasure. I, I, I can't wait for this book. Thanks, Ari. Wonderful. Paul, thanks for the call and for joining us on the show this evening. Cheers. Thanks, guys. That was a great call. Wow. I'll tell you, we're getting people in, quality. People in Canada are great, man. People I don't know what's going Canada on. Are great. <laughs> well, it's, 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 it's always amazing to me when someone can ask you a question that genuinely surprises you. I mean, Lord knows how many different interviews you've done and how many different media kind of junkets you've been at pressers. Um, does it ever get old? Do you, do you always find that there's something to be said for getting surprised by somebody who comes up to you and asks you a question that maybe you have never given your due thought or due diligence towards? Well, you know, fans today, man, they're so educated, right? And it's like, you know, for him to even come up with, you know, the term, the yips, I was like, wow. <laughs> you know, and I, I, you know, you you might see a guy or whatever, and you're like, you know, you might have a conversation for a second, but uh, you know, I'm, I guess, you know, I'm just lucky. I never had it, but I never give it any serious thought. So when he brought that up, you could tell it was something that he definitely thought about and had some conversations around and, and, uh, but let me tell you something. Fans are so educated today. I get surprised all the time and, and, but it's fun, man. It's kind of like, you know, those type of questions. It's, it's almost like we're sitting around the campfire and shooting the bull and, Hey, what about this? And what about this? And, and to me, that's what makes the game so great, too, is all the conversations you can have about the game. Hmm. I'm looking at my Twitter feed. I've got a, I've got a question for you from Twitter, which okay. uh, is always cool hearing one of the questions for you. And uh, one person in particular, at Spesh K Music, Spesh asked Todd, did any members of the rotation or bullpen back then that you pitched, such as Steve Wells or Hanky, really take the younger guys under their wing? Yeah, you know, um, Hanky was Hanky was incredible. Um, you know, we when Hanky was one of those guys. Mike Flanagan was one of those guys. Jimmy Key was one of those guys. Um, and 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 then there were other guys too. You know, everyday players. But those guys um, for the fraternity of pitchers. They, you know, I remember we go on the road and and I go to lunch with Hanky or Key or Mike Flanagan or Jim Clancy or one of these guys, Dave, Steve, and the young guys never bought. The older guys always took care of them. And it was kind of one of those things. And then I took pride in it later on when I became a veteran to take younger guys, take them to eat and spend time with them. But, uh, you know, I remember Mike Flanagan, he was a special guy to me. And, you know, they were all special to me, but... I won my first game in Seattle, 
And after the game, you know, I was shaking it. He come up to shake my hand, and it was my first major league win. He goes, okay, Todd. He goes, 199 more. And I was like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know? And uh, But, uh, you know, I was blessed and lucky and played with some great guys up there in Toronto, you know, early on. And, yeah. and even George Bell, man. I mean, hey, if you went to dinner or something with George Bell, George Bell covered the tab. And, and we had a great group of guys that took care of players, so... That great question. I appreciate the question, but uh, absolutely, that's part of the it's part of the fraternity, right? It's like you come in new, you come in young. Somebody takes you under their wing. Yeah. Uh, you hear the stories all the time, and and especially you know as the guys get older and they start telling stories about the guys that took care of them, and that's somewhat that's one of the special things in the fraternity of baseball. Now you mentioned 199 wins and. Um... Here we are in 2017. Is it even worth talking about getting 300 wins as a standard anymore for the Hall of Fame for pitchers? Do you think they're going to lower that bar, Todd, in terms of who they consider for the Hall of Fame, knowing that the way starters pitch today, 300 wins is a pipe dream? You know, I'm not, I'm not the guy that says 300 wins is a pipe dream, but I am the guy that says that it's going to take 20 years, right? And yeah. so what do we know about that? Most guys aren't going to pitch 20 years. And, and uh, so, you know, I think that, you know, the fairness of it and, and certainly, you know, somebody is uh, maybe, you know, maybe more educated on this than I am. But I think you have to look at who's the, in a particular decade, who's the best of the decade. And then based on that is, is, is that a Hall of Fame candidate? You know, so, um, you know, every era is different. You know, you, you see guys and, and and you've seen the whether it's the number of home runs or the number of wins or the number of strikeouts, each era brings something a little bit different to the table. So to have one measurement system, uh, I think is probably out of place. And and uh, you know obviously the game has changed. You know I, I look at it, you know really from my father's career to my career. You know he pitched in the 60s and 70s. I pitched in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, so five consecutive decades we were part of Major League Baseball. And in his career, they were throwing, you know, he was, he was, he was pitching uh, uh, 275 to 300 innings a year. And by the time they got to my era, if you were pitching 200, 220 innings, they called that a lot. Uh, now mm-hmm. I think that if you look at starting pitchers, if somebody's pitching 180 innings, they think that that's a lot of innings, you know, so – I mean, things change, so uh, I believe that the measurement system of it is one of the easiest ways is, is who is the best of the decade, and now how do we measure them against maybe history in some some fashion or form. And we certainly see that's the way the Hall of Fame slowly holds. Once I think we get over this hump over how to deal with certain, uh, quote, steroid cases, if you will, which is a, a great contra- controversial debate that I'll weigh in on later, um, Pitchers now, I think, being compared with uh, the more modern expectations of how they're used. And there are some good ones out there, no doubt. But who would you look at the game today and say, that pitcher is going to be a shoe-in for the Hall of Fame? Who, who strikes you as being the best of this era that, you're, that you see on television or go to games and see these days? You know, Kershaw is, is definitely one of those guys that if he was to continue at this pace long enough, right, so part of the Hall of Fame, or when you look at somebody, you got to look at some. You got to look. There's got to be some sense of longevity. Like 
you know, how good were you and for how long, and then how does that compare maybe to, to the rest of the league? You know, uh, uh, I mean, I remember when I, when I was playing with Randy Johnson, it was like, well, this is a shoe-in, right? And when you look at some people, you go, well, this guy's a shoe-in or that guy's a shoe-in. But, you know, because of injuries and because of the, the second you label somebody a shoe-in, something happens, you know. And it was kind of like, you know, the theory, I'll change sports on you for a second. It, everybody and their brother around the world thought Tiger Woods would run away and break every golf record in the history of the PGA, and he got injured. And so who knows, you know, but – Kershaw is definitely one of those guys. Uh, I can't even think of his name. His name has now escaped me, but uh, uh, the left-handed pitcher for the San Francisco Giants that has been brilliant in the playoffs. You uh, know Baumgartner. who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Baumgartner. Baumgartner. I mean, mm-hmm. and then look what happened. <laughs> yeah. and, and so, I mean, you, you look at a guy like him and it's like who, who literally has ice in his veins. It seems like he doesn't feel any pressure when the games are uh, at his biggest. You'd have to look at a guy like that and say, well, what kind of long, if he has longevity, man, you start looking at a guy like that and you say, well, man, that guy's a shoe in. So I just think it's so hard. I think it's so difficult to measure a shoe in over a couple of years. I think once you get to where you got somebody that's, you know, 10, 11, 12 years in, you start saying, does he measure up? To Hall of Fame standards. Mm. So I bailed on your question, Ari. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I'm on the contrary. I, I like the way that you answered it in terms of making me think about uh, those players that do rise to the occasion. And uh, they're a rare breed. I mean, let's face it. If, uh, if David Price, for example, when he came to the Blue Jays in 2015, had pitched in the playoffs like the David Price of the regular season, we'd be talking about right. 2015 World Series champion. So, uh, That's champion. Right. So, That's right. So at some point, I think we have to look at pitchers and realize that you're a great pitcher, but to become a truly legendary or epic pitcher, you've got to show fans that when push comes to shove, you can pitch at the highest level with the highest amount of stress on your shoulders. And I'm a firm believer, Todd, that that's why you were able to be part of something special in 92 and 93, because pitchers from the starters to the bullpen to some of the call-ups all seem to have this swagger about them. It's like you knew, your team knew that in 1992 and in 1993, it was time to win, that you had reached that where after repeated efforts in, in 85 and, and the collapse in 87 and then 89 and 91, I think you and I agree that as great as those teams were, it was the 92 and 93 team that finally understood what real chemistry and leadership can do. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I mean, I just I look at those years and, and I don't want to say destined, but committed. And, and I think that when you look at the club as a whole and those clubs and, and the guys that came up and, and, uh, you know, I remember Pat Hinkin coming up, and it was like, bam. I mean, he was like a veteran right away. I mean, just Juan Guzman, like, bam, veteran right away, you know. Mm-hmm. And when I say veteran right away, I mean, they were they were performing, man, quick and fast. And, and, uh, and that was the nature of what was going on at that particular time. And, and I don't, like I said, I don't want to say destined. I'll say committed that – this this or this organization, the Toronto Blue Jays, and and every player and every player 
throughout the system, there was a commitment to winning world championships, not just to win divisions and not just to win playoff or get to the playoffs, but to win a world championship. And, and that commitment and that discipline and, and that mindset was throughout. It was throughout the organization from, from all the way to Paul Beeson's office to Pat Gillick's office, all the way down to uh, our, the people that were working in the clubhouse that were taking care of the players. Everybody had the sense of being the best we could be to be a world champion. So now I just took a look at Twitter while you were while you were uh, talking about uh, the importance of chemistry and how we get to that point where uh, you can be successful. And somebody asked a really surreal question. I, I can't help but ask you, which would you bet on in a fight, Dave Steve or Jimmy Key? That's Patrick Donovan at <laughs> underscore Donovan. Question. And it'll segue me nicely into my next question. How do you think about that? I, I, I'm going to assume that they're fighting each other. Is that how the question is stated? <laughs> <laughs> or, or they fight let's, somebody let's else. You know? question. Let me take that question and ask it this way: um, Who was? We both know they were tremendous competitors, but but uh, what can you say about Dave, Steve, and Jimmy Key as to why they were so successful as Blue Jays? Because I think you could make a case, and I'm not on a limb here, but you could probably make a case that I'm talking about the best right-hander and the best left-hander in the history of the Blue Jays franchise. Would that be a bold statement in your opinion? I think without question, I agree with you 100%. And you know what's crazy is they were both, um, they're drastically different pitchers other than just being right-handed and left-handed. And when I look, when I think of Dave Steve, I think about some of the nasty, he could throw some of the nastiest breaking balls in the world. And, and, and when he unleashed the fastball, he threw, you know, in the, in the low to mid-90s with massive movement especially in the prime of his career with a nasty curveball and a nasty slider. See, some people have a nasty curveball or a nasty slider. He had a nasty curveball and a nasty slider, and he could throw it from multiple angles. I mean, he was a force, and Mm. he had the kind of stuff that on any given day he had the potential to throw a no-hitter. He had the potential to throw a shutout. And he was that kind of guy. He was that. And by the way, you want to talk about a fierce competitor? Like, wow, man. And he was he was a fierce, and I mean fierce, competitor. I mean, he did not show up to pitch well. He showed up to win the game. And he was awesome. And then, and then I look at Jimmy Key. And I look at Jimmy Key with not near the, the, the talent physically – but but owned his craft mentally, knew the hitters in and out. He pitched backwards better than I've ever seen in my entire life. And what do I mean by pitching backwards? Sometimes he would throw his worst pitches early, his best pitches late. Sometimes his best pitches early, his worst pitches late. He kept everybody, like, wondering what was going to be next. He he was a magician for throwing a – he would throw an OO fastball, maybe go ball one, and then turn around and throw a curveball for a strike, and now you got the hitter one one. And the and that hitter would take that would take that curveball for a strike every time, and he's back to being even again. I mean, he mm-hmm. was he was he was a magician, and I don't mean and I mean that in a good sense. He he studied, he knew his craft, he and he had one of the greatest pickoff moves ever. I mean, he was unbelievable, by the way, and I. And, and 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 in nineteen, what was the year? Now I'm gonna I'm gonna 
1991. In 1991, mm. in the first half of the season, I followed Jimmy Key in the rotation. And I got to tell you something. I loved it. And the reason I loved it was because Jimmy Key threw a lot of fastballs. You know, you look at him and you look at his stuff, and here was the mid to late 80s guy. And you think, well, he's got to mix in a lot of junk. But let me tell you something about Jimmy Key. That was the guy probably threw more fastballs than anybody on the staff. But he had such command and such control of his fastball. He could throw it on both sides of the plate. He could throw it up. He could throw it down. He was a magician. And the reason I loved following him in 1991 is he would exploit hitters. He would exploit their strengths and weaknesses. And I would just watch what he would get away with his fastball. I knew I had a better fastball. But if Jimmy Key and I would watch how he would use his, and then all I would try to do is replicate it the next night from the right side. And if you look at the first half of 1991, I think Jimmy Key won 10 or 11 games in the first half. I won nine. I mean, it, it was like, it was, it was awesome pitching right behind him because he exploited hitters because he was so good at it. So they were drastically different pitchers, but there's no question if, if we want to say who is the best right-handed pitcher in the history of the Toronto Blue Jays and the best left-handed pitcher, those guys are arguably both number one. Hello. Hi. You're on the line with Todd Stottlemyre. Go ahead. Hi. This is Dean Thompson calling. I'm calling from Keene, Ontario, just uh, uh, south of Peterborough, Ontario. Um, Dean, how are you, sir? I'm good. Thank you. Um, I got a yes. question. What with uh, Greeley, how he pitched at the end of the year last year, and he had spot control, how did you lose it so quickly the next year like he did? Well, oh, man. You know, that's <laughs> there's so many great questions tonight. You know, sometimes it's unexplainable. And, and sometimes, you know, to me, it is so much about the mental aspect of the game. And, and, uh, and, I, I, and look, he could – by the way, he could have something ailing, and what I mean by ailing, he could have something minor or something that's nagging that we don't know about, right? Okay. And And so, I mean, I don't – and it could be anything. It could be, you know, I've seen pitchers with hips or knees or, or rib cages or, or maybe he's got tenderness somewhere. And, and a lot of times when you see a pitcher start to – maybe where, where, where he's – He's, he goes from having good control or at least uh, owning the craft to all of a sudden, you know, not having good control. A lot of times there can be something nagging that we don't know about. Now, I, I've, I've had that uh, instance before, me personally, where, you know, we don't, you don't want the media to know. You don't want the opposing teams to know. So nothing is said, but yet – so I don't know if that's the case. So let me take that one and just say that's a possibility. Yeah. And then the other the other possibility is, and, and we've talked a lot about it on the show tonight, and that is the mindset. And is he getting himself ready to pitch? And is he and okay. is in, and in his mindset is he is he working hard pitch to pitch or or is he just relying based on more physical ability and just showing up. I just think the game is so mental. So I don't know the answer, um, but most of the times I would tell you uh, what I've seen and what I've witnessed, a lot of times when you see guys all of a sudden go from in control to out of control, 
a lot of times there's something nagging or there might be an injury somewhere that's being hidden that we're not even aware of. And by the way, he might have it and not even know it. Okay. I mean, look, here, I'll, t- I'll give you an example. I woke up in 1999 on game day for me. It was the, in San Francisco. And I remember I woke up with a – and my shoulder was kind of aching. And I thought to myself, man, I must have slept on my arm wrong. And I kind of had an ache in my shoulder. Now, prior to that day, I never had one ache in my shoulder ever. But on this day, wow. I woke – and I thought, well, I must have just slept on it wrong. No big deal. Well, I go out that night, and it's a cool, you can only imagine, it's a cool, windy night in San Francisco. And my pitching coach comes to me, Mark Connor, as I'm warming up, and he says, man, you all right? I said, yeah. I said, I just got it. I'm kind of stiff. I think I slept on my arm wrong. I said, I'm having a hard time getting loose. So I probably threw an extra 20 or 30 pitches in the bullpen to just try to work through it. Here's what's crazy. I go out for inning one against the Giants, have a good inning, come in, and, and it's like I got this toothache now in my shoulder after the first inning. And, and, and my pitching coach comes to me. He goes, you all right? I said, yeah, it's kind of like I got a toothache in my shoulder. It would be equivalent to having a, you know, a toothache. I said, I just got this yeah. ache, and it's kind of – and then inning two, inning three. By the time I got to the fifth inning, I couldn't throw the ball to the plate. And, oh, and, wow. and then they come and take me out of the game. Uh, the next day, I fly back to Arizona. I'm doing M- I do two MRIs. Uh, the doctor looks at the MRIs, and he says, Todd, I need you to travel around the country and go get any second opinions you want. Your, your labrum is torn. You have a hole in your rotator cuff, and you have torn your bicep tendon away from the wow. bone. And if I fix you surgically, I don't think you'll ever pitch in the major leagues again, but I want you to go get the opinions of other people. And I went to see Yoakum in L.A. He looked at my MRI, and he says, man, you've had a great career. And I'm like, you, you, you doctors are crazy. I'm not done. But you see, it all, it all started with me waking up in San Francisco. Now, did I have a hole in my cuff? Did it, did it just happen in one night? No, it happened over years. Did I tear my labrum that night? No, it happened over years. And you see, so sometimes we don't know what's going on. Uh, on the inside of an athlete sometimes. And so okay. I don't, I'm not trying to make excuses. I'm just trying to say, hey, there's, sometimes there's something hidden that we're not seeing today. Now, that's, right. physically, that's physically. But there's no excuse for not getting your mind right, not preparing, not working as hard as you can work to be the best you can be and to be grateful that you get to wear that uniform and to make all that money playing a game and playing a sport. So I will make no excuse for that part of it. Mm. Okay. Can I ask you one quick question? Sure. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, the Chicago Cubs last night, Arietta was pitching, and his catcher kind of threw him under the bus by all the seven steals that were put on him. How would you feel as a pitcher if uh, the catcher said something negative towards you not holding the batters on? There's kind of a code, right? It's like yeah. the code is that, you know – all that stuff, look, that should all stay in the locker room, by the way. Those are the, the, the worst, in my, this is my opinion, and I think 99.9 out of 100 guys are going to agree with exactly what, I, what I'm thinking right now that play the game of baseball, and that is, man, you should, never, you should never show up or throw a teammate under the bus into the media because now they're going to exploit it, number one. 
Yeah. And number two, you put yourself out there. You got to be perfect too now, right? Oh, and, exactly. And and I mean, look here. I, I told Ari earlier. I was horrible at holding runners on. I mean, I was terrible. Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't even slightly good. How about that one? And and yeah. but I also knew it was the weakness of mine, something I had to work at. And there's a different way to handle that. There's a much more professional way. I mean, look. At the end of the day, guy's doing the best he can. And, and he might be terrible at holding runners on, but I, I always look at it this way. Is the catcher upset because of his statistics throwing runners out, or is the catcher upset because it's costing us the game? Yeah, Uh-oh. I think it's the, the, the beginning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what would, you, what would you have done in the locker room after that had happened? Yeah, I would have said, I, I mean, to, oh, if somebody would have showed it up? Yeah. <laughs> No. Or or made those comments? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that would have been ugly. I, I don't know exactly what I would have done. It would have been ugly. And yeah, and no that was – but you know what? And, and rightfully so. And guess what? We had lots of situations, not not where somebody threw somebody under the bus, but, hey, we we as professionals, we managed, monitored – each other's egos. We used to say, check your ego at the door. There's no room for it in here. And by the way, if somebody was getting too big for their shoes, we called them to the carpet and we got it over in the locker room so that at 7.05, when the lights came on and the stadium was full and the first pitch was thrown, all 25 guys, same mindset, same vision, pulling the same rope. And the second you have one guy on the opposite end of that, the whole there's a massive breakdown in the club, and now you got a problem inside the locker room. Yeah, now I can see that with your '92 and '93 Jays, you guys had a lot of good ball players, but you had to have some egos in that dressing room too, eh? and you're able to keep it together. Yeah, think about it. Well, I think one one of the I don't remember which year it was. One of the All Star games, they took eight Toronto Blue Jays to an All Star yes. game. Imagine that. I yeah, mean, it's like awesome. a '93 team, absolutely. Yeah. No. Yeah, I don't remember what the kind of players. Yeah. And I'm like, thank you for your time. Dean, we appreciate your questions. Great questions tonight. And I I appreciate you calling in. All right. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, sir. Yeah, man. Have a great one. Very good. Let's go right back to the lines. We've had someone waiting for the last uh, almost 10 minutes. Uh, Go ahead. Uh, What's your name and where are you calling from? Uh, It's Troy. I'm calling from Kingston. Troy from Kingston. Go ahead. You're on with Todd Stottlemyre. Troy, how are you doing tonight? I'm excellent, thanks. Uh, it, it's kind of a, 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 a weird feeling. Uh, I watched uh, the Jays back when you were with us and, and all your great run there. The question was, Todd, is being a pitcher, and I know you grew up and, and you were, you know, you, were, you almost had to be a hitter. And as going through the major leagues with the AL and the NL and the designated hitter, um, did you ever have a preference of, and what do you think of that, that rule? Would you want to be a hitter all the time, or do you like not hitting and just concentrating on the pitching? I, I'm, I'm, yeah, and I appreciate the question. I hate the designated hitter rule. I hate it. Good. And when I went to the National League, I loved – I mean, I got to tell you something. I loved it because, you know, a couple things. Number one, it's a break. Like when you got to go to the plate, it's a little bit of a break, and it's a little bit of a – pressure relief from being on the mound. So that was number one. Number two is, and I worked really, really hard at, at my bunning and the slap bunning, slap hitting, 
and I worked really hard on my swing because it was, you know, here's the way I look at it. If in any, if, and if you look at the National League, it's crazy statistically how, how this happens. If you see pitchers that do their job on a sacrifice bunt, um, opposed to not doing their job on a sacrifice bunt. So when a guy fails uh, as a bunter and a, as a pitcher and he fails, I can't tell you how many times that team loses the game. It is crazy. So it is a ma- – I look at it as, man, I love this. I'm an athlete. I'm going to work so hard at this. And, and I, I look at it as I can have an advantage – over someone else who's not taking their hitting as serious. And I got to tell you exactly. something. I, I hit over 200 my first year, and, and I worked pitchers. I, I got to tell you something. I worked them to death, man. I went up there, and I was like, man, I, I, I'm here, and I'm not just a pitcher. I'm a hitter. I'm the real deal. And I, I worked my tail off because I knew that if I could win one more game because of me, because of my offense, that's a massive edge over the rest of the guys. And, and uh, hey, look, the designated, designated hitter rule I know is great for fans because maybe it's somebody that is uh, – maybe they're a little older, they can't play every day, they can't play a position every day, but they're a great hitter, and the fans get to see a great hitter. But, man, i got to tell you something. I'll, I'll never lose that purest mindset of pitchers also hitting. I love it, man. Well, you know, back when I was watching him, you did hit a couple times, and, and I've seen you hit, and you were a good hitter, and, and obviously you put work into it. Um, and not to rub it in, Todd, and I'll leave you with this note, but um, the, maybe you should have worked on the sliding. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting. I, hey, I'm so grateful for this call because i got to tell you something. I know you just led right to me, and you couldn't wait. For, um, by the way, i got to tell you something. That that was probably the worst slide in baseball history. But I will tell you this. It was so fu- it's so funny to me today because um, – and, and, and it wasn't funny then because I was so stupid uh, for even trying to go to third. But in any case, it is what it is. But I, what people don't know is I didn't just go chin first. I knocked my – I went completely out on that slide. And I remember I kind of woke, and I was like, I, I mean, it knocked me out. It was like a blow in my head and neck just snapped. And I remember Cito was like, man, what are you doing? I was like, shit, I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, and and I went to pitch the next inning, like, dizzy and just completely out of sorts. But uh, that was definitely a bonehead slide. It was a bonehead move. But I got to tell you something. I'm grateful for it because I uh, – and the reason I'm grateful is because so many people remember that that I think somehow, some way, they remember me because they remember that. So I'm grateful to be remembered. But thank you so much. <laughs> Todd, thank you for taking my call, but you remembered for a you lot got more about than that. I, I, I say it with nah, all due respect. No, nah, man, Thanks I appreciate it. I, listen, I appreciate it. It's, it's laughable, and I appreciate the questions. And I've been waiting on you all night. I knew somebody was going to come <laughs> up with it. So I, I appreciate you, man. I appreciate you. Great call, Troy. Great call. Thanks for yeah, calling you. Thank you. So, Todd, I, I'm wondering your feelings on this. I've always regarded baseball as like a, like a celestial, almost like a celestial barometer of time as we grow older. Uh, we see some of our heroes being replaced, own children, and it gets really surreal. For example, when I see Vladimir Guerrero Jr. or I see Bo Bichette as at least elite prospects in the Blue Jays system, 
Now, your father, Mel, is a true inspiration in his own right. You know, 11 seasons as a pitcher, 23 seasons as a coach, a five-time All-Star, a five-time World Series champion. What was it like growing up for you in the shadow of such an extraordinary person? And, uh, and how did it inspire you to consider baseball as your passion? Was there anything else you wanted besides being a pitcher and maybe by having your father in your life, he, he showed you that path through by leading through by example? Yeah, great, you know, all right, great question. And, and you know, what's crazy is I, I look back on those times and they were, I mean, they were just so, uh, and they're more special today than they were when I was growing up. And, and a lot of the reason why is because the game has changed so much. See, when my dad went to Yankee Stadium, my brothers and I, we, we put our Yankee uniforms on and we went to work with my dad every day. So while he was going to work to be a major league pitcher, uh, for the New York Yankees, we were going to a playground that we called Yankee Stadium. And uh, I kind of make a joke of it, and I say, hey, look, Monument Park at Yankee Stadium was kind of like our monkey bars. But when I look back and I think about being out on the field and running around during Yankee batting practice, there were times I was standing in the outfield grass, and the guy standing next to me was a guy by the name of Mickey Mantle. I mean, can you imagine? And growing up, in that environment and just, you know, that environment lent uh, where we began to dream and we believed that our dreams were possible. And that was to follow in my father's footsteps and to play major league baseball, even though there was an extraordinary shadow on us because of his true greatness. So, you know, I, I would just tell you, you know, I, it wasn't my dream to be a major league pitcher. It was my dream to play major league baseball. I didn't know what position I was going to. I just wanted to play in the major leagues and and then and then ultimately to become a pitcher. But I also remember, and I still do it to this day. Anytime I'm around athletes or 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 you know astute business people or people at the top of their game, I watch them. And I watch them how they act, and I watch them how they respond. And I can remember being in the Yankee clubhouse just watching and, and, and watching guys, how they act, how they talk, how they walked, how they ran, how they played the game. And it was just always a student of excellence. So uh, growing up in that environment, uh, having the last name Stottlemyre on the back of my jersey certainly helped. Uh, but at the end of the day, it might have gotten me in the door, but the only way to stay on the field was to perform. So I'm grateful for my childhood. I'm grateful for the environment. I'm grateful for my father, who has been an extraordinary, not only inspiration, but mentor, coach, and friend to me all through my life. Absolutely inspirational stuff, Todd. And, and I have to tell you, it's always a pleasure when we get a chance to sit down like this and talk. Uh, tonight especially, a lot of candid exchanges and trips down memory lane. Before I let you go this evening, maybe let our followers and listeners at Jay's Journal know what you're up to, what they should be focusing on when it comes to getting more Stottlemyre in their lives. Give me an idea of what uh, what you're working on and what they should be mindful of. Yeah, a couple of things. You know, I'm releasing a book July 1st called Relentless Success. I, I talk about growing up in Yankee Stadium. I, I, I talk about tragedy. I talk about triumph. I, I talk about setbacks. And, and through this whole system I call a nine-point uh, uh, major league achievement system, it can be applied to anybody in any aspect of life. And I bring real human story to the book of, of the good, the bad, and the ugly of my life and how I had 
a group of people around me in every step that helped me get to the next one that really, you know, uh, what happened was it transformed into this nine-point system that I use in every aspect of my life. Uh, my wife uses it. My kids use it. So I'm really excited about the book, Relentless Success. Obviously, you can go to Amazon and get it. Or if you would like an autographed copy, man, come to ToddOfficial.com. I'm doing a very special limited edition autographed model offer of the first 2,500 books. I've been running it for about a week. Uh, the orders have been pouring in, and I'm just so grateful and humbled. Uh, we've actually sold this book around the world. We've had people from more than 10 different countries order the book directly at me at ToddOfficial.com. Hey, you can come to ToddOfficial.com, which is really the ToddSaddlemeyer.com website. Uh, get all the blogs, all the videos, all the updates, and just hang out as a group with us. Uh, I'm going to do a very special Facebook Live tomorrow at 12 noon Pacific time talking about the book relentless success you can come join me on facebook but uh hey i just want to say that i am grateful uh i don't take uh i don't take it for granted for one second uh how important the country of canada how important the city of toronto and how important the toronto blue jays were to enriching my life i'm will be forever grateful to all of you in canada uh i thank you for allowing me to be home there for seven years. I love when I come back and, and how I'm treated uh, from the great people in Canada. Ari, you've been super special tonight, and we've had some incredible people call in and, and just be so kind, and I just appreciate it so much. But, uh, hey, look, man, if you can come hang out, come follow me on Facebook, on Twitter, and all those things, uh, let's connect, and, and uh, let's build relationships, let's change lives, and and one, I know one plus one is three. So, uh, look, I'll do my part. You do your part. We'll expand as we go. His name is Todd Stottlemyre. He's my favorite sentimentalist and a true champion, both on and off the baseball diamond. Todd, have a wonderful evening. Thanks for doing this. Ari, you're uh, my pleasure. And by the way, sir, you are the champion, my friend. And uh, I love what you're doing. I love what you're doing uh, with the podcast and with the show and I know you're going to have some extraordinary guys from the past come on and be guests, and I look forward to listening in and plugging into those. So keep up the great work, and uh, I'll be talking to you soon, my friends.